The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. <clears throat> so this evening, uh, the topic is uh, the last exercise in the teaching the Buddha gave called the Four Foundations of Mindfulness, or the the Four Ways of Establishing Awareness. And uh, as I've I've done a series of talks now, this since the beginning of the year, covering this, uh, these sets of exercises. And, um, and this is the last exercise, but we'll do at least one more talk next week, to kind of the conclusion of it. And, um, and one way of understanding these exercises that uh, are presented, 13 exercises, is that uh, they, uh, many ways, different ways of understanding and interpreting them. But one that I, I'm fond of is the idea that they present a path or a journey. And uh, they kind of follow a sequence that's relatively obvious or logical or, or uh, you know, um, if you sit down, get quiet and pay attention. And this, this sequence tends to kind of overall, this is kind of a sequence that people kind of follow. And there's all kinds of variation, of course, but uh, the general kind of approach. So you sit down and you're quiet. You sit down here and get quiet and just pay attention. And one of the first things you might become aware of is your body. No, my body's not comfortable. I just sat down. I better get myself more comfortable. And, uh, or I'm car- I didn't realize how much tension I'm carrying. Or, you know, different aches and pains in the body. And maybe you have a headache that day and that really stands out large. And you start being aware of your body. It's the coarsest activity you have, biggest kind of thing, biggest kind of thing to notice. In some ways, maybe the easiest thing to notice for many people, not everyone. And so you kind of notice your body. And if you stay and kind of notice your body and you're sitting still uh, and you start paying attention to the largest movement in your body as you're sitting still, it would be your breathing. So it kind of becomes interesting to kind of just notice your breathing and maybe you notice your breathing is kind of tense or shallow or not so comfortable and so maybe you kind of relax and open up and you breathe in a more deeper way, you relax. And then uh, you start becoming aware of other things, uh, you know, of your body as you go about, if you you sit down and are quiet for a little while and uh, relax a little bit and then you get up to walk around uh, you'll start to kind of be more cognizant, more recognized that you're, you're walking, what it feels like to walking. And you're here, you're aware of your walking. If you're busy and doing a busy life and you're going at work between different places at work and you're going fast, it probably wouldn't have occurred to you that you're walking. <laughs> you're so involved. But if you're calm and relaxed, walking becomes something you notice. And it's, some people find it very enjoyable. And uh, we start noticing different parts of our body, different aspects of it. We settle into our body. If we continue, especially in meditation, to settle in, be quiet and pay attention, and the body's relaxed and settled, one of the next things that uh, kind of can stand out is what it feels like to be in a body, what it feels like to be here. Because the body is not just a, uh, you know, a you know, hunk of flesh. It's, a, um, uh, it's full of nerves and, 
and uh, kind of the picks up and responds and and to uh, stimuli and what's happening and and it gives us all kinds of sensations of pleasure and and pain and pleasant and unpleasant and and it's a very important signal that our body prov- provides us pleasant and unpleasant and you, you know to remove your hand from the hot stove because it's pretty unpleasant uh, you uh, probably our taste buds are are created to uh, be able to taste things that are pleasant to eat so we don't eat poisonous things or things that are some bad for us and so they, they have what's pleasant and unpleasant is an important part of human experience and it said that everything, everything, every experience we have has some quality of either pleasant, unpleasant, or this kind of neutral, neither pleasant or un- unpleasant. So as we sit and get quiet, uh, we start feeling how, you know, how, how it is to be here. Is it pleasant or unpleasant? Oh, no, this, some, you might get restless because oh, it feels so you know, uncomfortable to be in my body. Uh, I didn't realize how much agitation there is, and this is really unpleasant. Or it's so good to finally sit down and be quiet and just let the body rest and that resting and settle feels pleasant. And as we kind of tune in to this pleasant level of the body and our minds in a sense, then uh, we also become aware of uh, kind of more deeply uh, what's the quality of our being, what's the quality of our our state of our mind or state of our heart, our inner sense. How is it to be alive in some inner way that's deeper then, you know, whether we taste something sweet and it's pleasant or whether uh, our knee, knee hurts because, you know, it's a little bit more twisted than it should be. But kind of really much more deeply, if you kind of like, what's the quality of your heart or your mind? And to know that also can feel pleasant and unpleasant. And then it gets interesting to look at the quality of mind or quality of heart. And we start noticing different aspects of it. Start noticing the effect that... Um, things that help get the heart, heart the mind contracted or so feel the heart what makes the heart uncomfortable in terms of when the heart is mind is full of greed and, or con, uh, contracted with aversion or deluded or something and we notice when the mind or the heart the inner quality of being feels more expansive and open and so this kind of movement goes from the outside the body to a little more deeply with the feelings the pleasant unpleasant more deeply into the state of being, state of mind, or state of heart that we have. And it's kind of, you know, as you sit quietly, minding your own business, paying attention, that kind of awareness kind of, fo- you know, follows that trajectory as you get settled and relaxed. It becomes less interesting to think about things far away, um, other times in other places, and kind of the higher quality of just getting settled, more and more settled into here. And the example that I, I kind of like to use, maybe I used it last week, of... Um, if you have a bowl, um, uh, you know, with the angle sides, and uh, you drop a marble from the top of the edge of the bowl into the bowl, it'll roll back and forth and around and around until it comes to rest at the middle. Unless you put your finger in there and every time it kind of gets close to settling, you push it again. And you can keep pushing and that poor ball, will ne- the marble will never rest. And um, so the same th- uh, is true for all those loose marbles we have in our head. <laughs> that if we have this, you know, the head's kind of like a bowl. And, uh, <laughs> and if we keep, uh, you know, pushing those marbles, you know, every time they go by, they'll keep spinning and going. So our thoughts and our feelings and our reactions and all that. But if we stop pushing it, start re- stop reacting and getting involved, and just leave things alone, 
all our loose marbles will settle into the bottom of the bowl. And so as we set, over time, our mind gets quieter and stiller, more comfortable. And, uh, and the body also gets quieter and stiller and more comfortable and more pleasant. And so with that, there's less and less thinking, uh, or active thinking or discursive thinking, t- having whole, telling whole stories and conversations. And so there's a movement to a stilling and quieting that's very comforting, very enjoyable. Uh, this brings a sense of well-being as this kind of settling and stilling goes along. Uh, a lot of this classically in Buddhism is also, also talked about a process of letting go or letting it drift away or settling away or receding or dissolving of things. And the movement of letting go in Buddhism, in the Buddhist teachings, was always associated with uh, the attainment of some kind of happiness. And uh, so many people associate letting go with bad news. You have to let go of things and you have to, because, you know. But uh, in the teachings of the Buddha, letting go was uh, meant to kind of evoke or uh, happiness or joy or gladness. Every single time he talks about letting go, it's correlated to, I mean, every time he talks about it as part of the path of practice, it's correlated to attaining, I shouldn't say it every time. In some of the key passages where the Buddha describes the path to practice, um, uh, when he talks about letting go and simplifying the mind, quieting the mind, that it comes with um, uh, a a state of well-being and happiness, joy, gladness. This process of stilling, quieting, then feels like a very welcoming thing. Sometimes I think of it as a homecoming or a deep settling, coming back here. And so as we settle in further and we're aware of the inner state of being and what affects it and all that, then we can get some point, we get still and quiet enough that it becomes interesting or obvious, start noticing uh, the activity in the mind that moves us towards either contraction, discomfort, suffering, mental suffering, mental discomfort, or it moves us towards um, greater comfort, greater freedom, greater sp- uh, sense of, uh, of uh, peace. And we start noticing very, su- you know, the movements in the mind that you might not notice if you're running around being busy and you hardly notice what's going on. But if the mind is quite a quiet and still, then uh, you'll notice that um, if you get involved in really intense craving for sensual pleasures, you can feel that that doesn't feel very good. It kind of feels tight and contracted. And, um, you know, whereas if you're already tight and contracted, you know, have one more desire, it's like, you know, it might even be a little bit comforting because your desire is more pleasant than what's going on with your busy mind already. But if the mind is really quiet, you say, oh, that doesn't feel good to get involved in that. Or ill will, you feel some aversion to something. And the mind is kind of, there's kind of a, a purity or cleanliness or simplicity in the mind where we kind of see the movements very subtly. And... Um, and, uh, and it's a beautiful thing to be so sensitive to the movements of the mind. We actually see uh, the subtlest movements toward, towards and away from things, wanting and not wanting, uh, uh, latching on and not latching on. Um, and then as we learn to let go, seeing the arising of these really ple- pleasant, these very nice, meaningful states of mind that are associated with strong awareness, and this, this process of letting go of being caught up in things, being preoccupied. 
And this is what I talked about last week as the seven factors of awakening. And so these are these beautiful, consider the kind of the crown jewels of Buddhist practices, these beautiful states of mindfulness, uh, investigation, effort, um, joy, concentration, uh, and equanimity, tranquility. So that's what we've kind of reviewed so far. So going down, settling down, um, this moving this path, this journey of uh, all along as we're doing that, awareness, the capacity to be aware, becomes stronger and stronger. The capacity to be mindful becomes stronger and stands out in highlight. And it becomes no longer just a, um, you know, a chance thing or you kind of know you're aware, but it becomes like, like the main thing happening. Um, maybe in the same way that if you... Um, you go into many, many rooms that you, inside a building you go into, you might not notice the space. Space is not so prominent or so interesting for you. But if you go into a tremendously large cathedral, the space really kind of like stands out. Like a space becomes like a big thing. Like, wow, you know, like you lower your voice and you're kind of, you know, it kind of evokes a certain kind of presence. Uh, you're probably not going to be so preoccupied about your taxes uh, you know, because it's like this big vault, you know, it's kind of like grabs attention. And it's the space that kind of does that in part. So in the same way, awareness um, kind of becomes bigger. It's like great space in the mind or openness or a certain kind of, it's kind of a thing in itself that now becomes precious or valuable. And as the awareness becomes more established this way, mindfulness becomes more established, then we become ever more sensitive to what's happening moment by moment. And then we come to the last exercise. And this is the exercise that um, is the, ex- the exercise that the Buddha used or so had that uh, liberated him. So it's a very important step, this lib- movement into liberation to freedom. And, um, and it's worded in a way that probably for the peop- for people that haven't been introduced to this, it can seem, you know, what's the big deal? Or why is this so important? And why is this liberating? So the, the way it's stated is that uh, one understands, as it is, one understands, this is suffering. One understands this is the arising of suffering. One understands this is the cessation of suffering. And one understands this is the practice that attains the cessation of suffering. So this is suffering, it's arising, it's cessation, and the practice that realizes the cessation. And, um, and so why is this such a big deal? Why is this important? The word suffering uh, is the key word for the whole, what the whole enterprise the Buddha was engaged in, uh, he said sometimes, I teach suffering and the end of suffering. Like this is the heart of it. And suffering is, uh, you know, all the different ways from the most mild kind of form of irritation or discomfort, mental discomfort, to, you know, the greatest uh, tragedies and dis- and, and uh, despairs that we can experience. Um, it's a kind of the code word in Buddhism for the whole range of things that... Uh, you know, that the mental distress or something. And, um, 
And the Buddhist enterprise is to become free of that, to be liberated from that, to have a mind, a heart, which is no longer has any suffering in it. Remarkable achievement. Uh, It's considered one of the great noble achievements, in Buddhism at least, that for some people it might seem kind of not interesting. In fact, there was a man in the time of the Buddha who had been a monk, and then he uh, got kind of discouraged by the Buddha because the Buddha didn't display a lot of psychic powers and magic. And so he uh, disrobed. And then he went around town and saying, um, this Buddha, uh, he has no special attainments at all. The only thing that he's attained um, is the end of suffering. <laughs> and the Buddha heard about this and, and the Buddha said, well, this foolish man doesn't know that he's actually praising me. Um, and, um, you know, and to really, really, it's a remarkable thing to have the heart to have such peace or such spaciousness or such clarity that, uh, you know, it's, you know, there's no, there's no, no agitation, there's no restlessness, there's no contraction, there's no pain in the mind or in the heart that's, you know, it's a remarkable achievement, an amazing thing. And um, so this last exercise points right to this, to the heart of the matter of it all. And, um, and it, remember it comes, you know, if you follow this journey, it comes when the mind is quite still, quite peaceful. Actually, things are, there's very little suffering left uh, in the deeper, deeper kind of stages of meditation. And these, these seven factors of awakening, which are such beautiful qualities, are quite strong and settled. But it pr- pr- provides a very interesting uh, reference point or vantage point from which to look at our suffering. Because at this point, as the practice has gone along, we've kind of worked through a lot of our big challenges, worked through our relationship to many things, our our suffering and some of the bigger things have kind of settled out for a while. And so the vantage point for looking at our suffering is one of uh, being quite stable and independent of the suffering, not identified with it anymore not uh, troubled by it anymore. And so the ability to look at suffering without getting agitated, without getting afraid, without getting aversive, there's no reactivity anymore to it. Just like, oh, you can see it in a very quiet, still, kind of, in some ways, a pleasant, enjoyable mind, very still. And there's no tendency to want to make stories about it or think about it a lot or make commentary, just, just seeing it for what it is. And so it's a very important phase of practice because it allows us to see our experience kind of in a clearer way. So and then see suffering, it's arising, it's cessation, and that this is the, realizing that this is the way to bring the end, end of suffering. So why is it that this last exercise, exercise is so important? How does it work? And uh, there are two ways in, Buddhism, then they talk about how this last exercise functions. And one of them has to do with a deep understanding of impermanence. And the other has to do with a deep understanding of psychological causality. And um, both of them are very profound things, and different people perhaps have different doors, different angles in which they look at suffering, and, um, and each angle perhaps can be equally liberating, different doors to that to, to you know leave the suffering behind and the most common interpretation that people write about is the causality 
that, uh, and here it's usually associated with what's called the Four Noble Truths and how that's most commonly taught. That uh, there is suffering and the arising of it has a cause. And so, and, the, and that cause can come to an end, can, be, can cease, can, there can be the cessation of that. And there's a way in order to bring about the cessation of suffering. And so this is a very helpful insight to start looking at what is my contribution to my suffering? What's the cause of it? And I think this is one of the very grown-up aspects of Buddhism, is that it asks us to take responsibility for our contribution to our distress, our suffering, you know, whatever that fits under that term of suffering. And uh, even when other people, uh, you know, you can kind of conventionally say they caused my suffering, you can legally say they caused my suffering, and and um, and I guess if you're, oh yeah, what was the guy, uh, the Hulk, what was his name? He just got a hundred million dollars, and yeah, what? Yeah, Hulk Hogan. Yeah, so I guess he suffered. And the, and the, and the, and the jury the jury decided that suffering was worth some like sixty million dollars. He's going to get a billion. Oh, yeah. So maybe we all suffer like that. <laughs> and um, so legally, you know, the the cause of his suffering was elsewhere. But uh, so you know, we don't want to we don't want to you know you know there's there's definitely time and place to kind of attribute cause elsewhere. But in terms of Buddhist practice, if you're doing a Buddhist practice, or at the time you're doing Buddhist practice, at the time you're trying to discover how you yourself can open the door towards freedom, um, it's not really so useful to spend a lot of time blaming other people or looking elsewhere outside for the cause. But uh, sometimes it is, but uh, if they're like hitting you over the head with a hammer, you know, look outside and stop it. But, um, but uh, generally what we want to do if we're on the path of liberation, we want to turn the attention around and really look at ourselves and understand what is my contribution to this. Even if 90% of the conventional cause is outside, it, uh, uh, getting someone else to confess their cause and put the blame on them uh, doesn't help you understand yourself better. It doesn't help you to go deep inside and find out where you were stuck and caught and uh, where you can be a little bit more liberated and free. So this, uh, uh, the, 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 uh, the practice of, of the mindfulness practice is to look really deep inside. And this, when the mind gets really quiet and still, as we get through this, you know, these exercises of four foundations of mindfulness, it gives us an ability to look and see the operating system, the kind of core kind of movements of the mind that lie at the base of many, many other things, of uh, motivations and actions and activities that we do. So kind of like the, the source, the, the denominator, the, root, the Buddhist word uses the, uh, Buddhist word is root, where it all comes from. And, um, and so then they say that at the root, uh, in the teachings of the Four Noble Truth, the deepest root uh, is uh, said to be a certain kind of craving. There's something at the bottom of our suffering is some kind of search, desire, craving, compulsion 
for pleasure, for comfort, for delight, for something. There's some kind of craving that goes on. I mean, people often say it doesn't just include, include craving, for, uh, craving for pleasure, but also you know, a certain kind of reverse craving, of craving to get away from things, push things away. But there's a kind of movement of the mind at the base of it. And so uh, what happens, the mind gets quieter and quieter. We go through layers and layers of our operating system, what drives us and what goes on, what's embedded in deep in our mind. And so people start seeing uh, subconscious motivations, desires, actions. And it's quite remarkable to start kind of seeing and working through in these things. And go deeper and deeper in the mind. And at some point, you see this, the, the, the depth of it, a craving. And, um, and this is maybe the, the Buddha called this the, the arrow embedded in the heart. Um, he wrote a, he gave a poem, there's a poem attributed to the Buddha, where he talks about before he was enlightened, how dismayed and distressed he was at uh, all the violence and agitation in the world around him and how everything was changing all the time, uh, so much so that he could not find any place that can be his own. I think that meant any place he could rest and just kind of be. So he was looking some place, some thing, something going to do it for him. And uh, so he couldn't find any, anything until, lo and behold, he saw that there's an arrow embedded in the heart. And when he pulled that arrow out, uh, then he discovered peace, freedom, and this ultimate happiness. So this, this craving is sometimes seen as the root cause of, of it all. And so when we can find out how, when that, that, that craving can cease, can come to an end, then, uh, and it's, uh, and then that's the way to ultimate freedom. And maybe the first time we see it's seizing, it's just a temporary thing. But now we know it's possible to have a mind, a heart, that has not in any kind of way influenced or oriented around craving. Um, in the kind of craving you didn't even know you had, because your mind hadn't gotten quiet enough to see the subtlest workings of it. And that's a quite a remarkable experience to have. And then we do it over and over again until slowly the craving uh, diminishes, diminishes until we come to a time when the craving finally gives away, fades away once and for all. So that's kind of seeing it from the lens of causation, causality. The other lens, perspective for understanding this exercise on seeing suffering, its arising, its cessation, and, and, and how to realize a cessation, is uh, seeing impermanence in a deep way. And this is when the mind gets really, really quiet um, and still, but very sharp and awake, then we're not seeing our experience through the lens of our concepts, our thoughts about things. And then when we see, uh, we see that things actually arise and pass, arise and dissolve, much more quickly than we can ever imagine if we're living in concepts and ideas of things. And to be able to be so still and quiet, to see suffering arise and to see it pass, uh, and we see that it's not stationary, it's not fixed. There's gaps 
it arises and dissolves, then we realize that it's not the whole show. It's not who we really are. It can't be who we really are. It's not really what's happening. It can't because it's there a little bit and then it's gone. It has a nature of constantly arising and passing. If, it's, if it arises, it will pass. If, it, if it, anything in our mental psychological experience arises, if we see it occur, it wasn't, and then it comes into being, we can be pretty confident that it has a nature to pass away and dissolve as well. Maybe not as fast as sometimes we wish, but it arises and it can pass. But if the mind gets very, very quiet and still, that arising and passing is seen moment by moment. And it's kind of like there's a gap. Something ceases, comes to an end, and there's a gap before it arises again. Who are we in that gap? What's in that gap? What's in that pause, in that in-between place? And we see that at the same time as we see the arising and passing, there's also freedom. There's freedom right there and then. Freedom from grasping on it, freedom from getting involved in it, freedom from identifying with it. Um, And there is uh, another kind of bigger picture, bigger kind of game in town, which is this tremendous space, spaciousness, peace, well-being that exists just beyond the edges of of the arising and ceasing, all around it. Something like that. And uh, the quality of that ultimate peace and happiness is very different than most happinesses and peace that we can experience in ordinary life. Uh, and I don't know what the best analogy for it, but it might be that, you know, this idea of a fist that I often like to use, that um, uh, if I hold my hand in a tight fist, I have a fist. And if I go do this all the time, Gil will start talking about, no, people will start talking about Gil as being this guy who walks around with a fist. And I can be very identified with my fist. I have a very nice fist, thank you, and it's kind of beautiful and, you know, and, you know, it makes an impression on people and, you know, people t- seem to respect me more and, you know, <laughs> this, this, this fist is a, you know, I really think it's, it's good, you know, I depend on the fist. But it's kind of after a while, if I do this four foundations of mindfulness process and take clearly where my body, the feelings, the mind states and all that, then after a while I noticed, you know, it kind of hurts to have this fist all the time. And so it occurs to me to open the hand up. A few things happen there. One thing that happens is the fist disappears. What happened to the fist? Where's the fist now? Did it go somewhere? Can you even talk about the fist went, you know, went next door? You know, the f- it doesn't go anywhere. It's just like, it just dissolves, disappears. It's not here anymore. It's not, so it's not there. But more importantly, uh, as I release my fist, the tightness, there's a feeling of, re- the feeling of releasing the fist has a wonderful feeling of openness, of relief, of certain kind of like ease or peace or well-being. And that movement of release kind of exists in the empty space of the open hand. And you can't quite point to where that very satisfying feeling of release is, maybe. 
It's not like a thing. It's not like a, something you can sell in the store. You know, I, you know, I can tell you like, I have this beautiful experience of release. Do you want to buy it? Uh, you, can, you, know, you can't do anything with it exactly. It doesn't be- in some ways, it doesn't quite belong in time or in space. And so, but it feels very satisfying. Or I don't know if this is very satisfying, but the fist at least a little bit satisfying to open my fist. So that kind of movement is what happens in when we see impermanence, the rising and passing, and we realize that nothing in our present moment experience is worth grabbing. Nothing that we can experience here and now is worth grabbing onto. And so any movement to grab, to hold on, to resist, to move, to get involved in, we let go of, we release. And the experience of the heart or the mind releasing the, all the grasping, all the tightness, the fist in the mind, is what provides this ultimate sense of happiness, well-being, peace that the Buddha was talking about. But it's not quite a thing. You can't quite point your finger at it. You can't really um, grasp it because if you grasp it, you lose it. So, like, like I released my fist and it feels so good. Finally, it's open. I really love that open, relaxed feeling of the hand. I'm going <laughs> to grab it really fast and back to a fist. And what's happened to that good feeling? It, it disappeared, right? But I, you know, but I have to, I can't keep my hand open. It's so good. I have to protect it from people who are going to take it from me, or you know, I have to, you know, my, you know, I need to have an identity. I can't have an identity with this thing no one can see. The oh, relief you can't see, right? The peace no one can see. So I need to so hold on to it, and then people see me again, right? And I get my due respect with my fist. So the same thing with this wonderful uh-huh. deep sense of peace and well-being and freedom, it kind of is very different than anything else we usually orient ourselves towards. The things we think we need to have to have a successful life or a good life or anything like that. And it also goes against any of the usual tendencies to want to identify with it, make it our own, hold on to it. Because as soon as we do any of those things, we lose it. It disappears. It can't coexist. So then the task becomes to learn to trust keeping the, the, the hand and hand of the heart open, keep the heart open, the mind open, to trust that the life of liberation, life of freedom, follows a very different, um, I don't know if the, it's not the right word, but maybe rules, very different approach to life than how it is in the rest of life. We're holding on and wanting and manipulating and not wanting and, um, you know, often uh, being, being anxious and often is kind of the, the approach people take. But this other approach where the fist stays, o- the hand stays open, the mind stays open, you, 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 you can't hold on to anything. And if you depend on holding on to something for your life, it's, it can be disoriented. Like, can I trust this? I can only trust things if I'm holding it and doing something with it or identifying with it. And, but there's nothing to hold on to there. 
And so what, how do we live our lives? We live our lives, at, uh, you know, one way of understanding we live our, is with a profound trust that we will, from this space, know how to take care of the next moment. We'll know well enough how to take care of what things. We can trust ourselves, we can trust our hearts, we can trust our response, we can be in this world free and we'll take care of it in the appropriate way. And whether uh, that's logical, you know, from a rational thinking point of view, um, I can't exactly tell you, but um, the example of the people who are most spiritually mature in our Buddhist tradition is an example of people who don't go into enlightened retirement, uh, but actually they're very much involved in the world and supporting it and helping and engaging it in all kinds of ways. Um, and somehow that deep trust, uh, in that deep trust, there, there's a space for being, living in the world in a wise way that doesn't require the closing up, the tightening up, the holding on, identifying. So the last exercise in the four foundations of mindfulness is to either see in a deep, deep way the craving at the root of our being, the craving for life, the craving to be alive, the craving, even the craving to be. Imagine letting that go. And then they say in many spiritual traditions, you have to die to live. Die before you die. This very deep kind of letting go of craving. Or it's seeing a very deep insight into impermanence, into change, the rising and passing, rising and dissolving. And perhaps these are two different perspectives that really are pointing to the same thing, that lead, lead to this deep letting go. Okay, so that was the last exercise. We ran out of time for questions. So next week I'll do kind of a conclusion and there's a concluding section of this uh, text that Buddha gave, the Four Foundations of Mindfulness. And there's also uh, a part that I didn't say too much about called the refrain, which is used uh, periodically throughout the text. So next week we'll do the conclusion and the refrain and the conclusion and, and then we'll see if I feel finished then or not. So, thank you all.